It is great to be back with you all. I have missed you all. That is, I am not making that up. I have genuinely missed you all and have texted Alex a few times uh, with that. And uh, thank you for even for, uh, for praying for uh, all souls and for Charlottesville. Uh, Charlottesville is my hometown where I grew up. So it was a little strange last year to watch the news and say, I used to skateboard on that corner where that car accident happened. I used to play in that park where that statue is. So uh, thank you for praying. And it's great to be a part of a larger network together, the Ecclesia Network. So uh, this morning, um, after such a beautiful time of worship, um, this may feel like a little bit of a, a change of direction here. Um, but I want us this morning to actually look at the D word. I want us to unpack the D word. It's a word that is seldom talked about or discussed or even appreciated in churches. Uh, but I figure it's time for us to change that. And that word, that D word that I'm talking about is the word doubt. What are we to do with our doubts? We often avoid it. We all experience it. Regardless of where we're at in our faith journey. But we often repress it or wish it away. But if we're really honest, we all have them. And if we're even more honest, we may have them more often than we care to admit. In fact, some of us in this room today may be so racked by guilt and shame about the guilt that you have, and you want to get rid of it, but you just can't seem to do it. What do you do with this? These feelings of doubt that rise up. And the courageous few that I know are willing to raise their hand and say, I'm not going to hide this. This is where I'm at. It's so hard for us, especially in churches, to admit where we're feeling these spaces of doubt. And maybe, uh, understandably so, as many churches often punish you for that. And I don't, I'm really grateful that Generation Church is not one of those places where I sense if our voice, our doubts were voiced, that we'd be punished for that. But many people carry that baggage of saying, I openly admitted that and I was shunned and shamed. Now, let me be really clear. There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is that thing that it makes us feel angsty. It kind of happens to us. We don't know where it came from. It just kind of came out and grabbed and latched onto us. And we, oh, I don't like this feeling. I don't know what to do with it. Now, unbelief is the opposite. It's where we're in control, where we adamantly say, I refuse to believe that. There's no way that I'll believe that. I'm in control of it. But doubt is the thing that grabs us by the neck and won't let go, and we go, ah, how do we get this thing off? The topic of doubt relates to all of us. In fact, philosophers tell us that it is impossible for you to have faith in anything without being preceded by doubt first. I'm not talking facts. I'm talking faith. You have faith in anything. You have faith that a chair is going to hold you. Before you can even have faith, you have to doubt. I'm not sure that that chair will hold me. So we all have doubts. Here's what I'd like for us to do. You all had a card uh, placed on your chair, and there should be a little golf pencil um, or a pen that you might have. Here's what I want you all to do this morning. I want to give us all the space for us to voice doubts that we may have about wherever we're at in our faith journey. Now, let me explain this. You are not turning this in. This is for your eyes only. So you don't have to hold back. You don't have to be PG about your doubts. 
And I want to just give you a chance to just voice those. Just write those down, wherever they're at. Does everybody have a card? Everybody have a pencil or a pen? And I just want to give you just a moment or two to just jot some of those down. Again, this is for your eyes only. I'm not turning these in. You're not turning these into me. I'm not seeing these. The person next to you isn't even seeing these if you don't want them to. But just let's just take a moment and jot down what are some of those doubts that we have in our, our own faith journey? And if you even want to write down that you doubt if the Orioles will ever be good again, you can write that down as well. And you can keep writing throughout the teaching if that helps you. Maybe there are new questions that may come up for you um, during this time, and I encourage you to just continue to engage in that. But as we think about this idea of doubt and faith, and again, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, they actually are strange bedfellows, but they do belong in the same bed. (laughs) Because it's our doubts that often lead us to that path of faith. It's our doubts that, af- that often are the breakthrough for us in terms of our deepening faith. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about the disciples and the hierarchy of importance of them? Right? We've never actually talked about it, but there is some sort of hierarchy of disciples, aren't there? Right? You got Peter, right? He's kind of the kingpin, right? At the top, the captain of the team. All right, and then James and John are right there. So we see all these stories of Peter, James, and John, you know, a lot. And then there's kind of this middle group that isn't mentioned all that much, right? I mean, we know them at the beginning, but they aren't included in a lot of stories. And then the bottom, of course, is Judas, right? I mean, who would want to be Judas? There's not many kids in the world named Judas, you know? And there's a reason for that, right? But, but who's second to last in our minds? Thomas. Right? Peter, James, and John, the middle group, mostly anonymous. Judas, want to avoid being Judas. But the second worst disciples in our mind is oftentimes Thomas. Now, there's no official hierarchy, but that's how we stack them up oftentimes in our brain. Thomas seems to be the second worst disciple in our church tradition though we've never taught that explicitly. And he's retained this dubious prefix, right? Doubting Thomas. And what are we told? Don't ever be Thomas. Don't don't be like Thomas. Be like the others. Don't be like him. Now, with that being said, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And I want to encourage you, as you turn there... um, I'm going to ask, if you're physically able, would you stand as I read out of John chapter 20? I'm going to start in, in verse 19, and I'm going to go to 29. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You may be seated. There's a, there's a lot going on here in this story. I mean, we can almost do a four-part series just on this passage alone. But at the beginning, you know, we, we see that, you know, Jesus has been buried. There are claims that he's been raised from the dead, that the tomb is empty. He appears to Mary Magdalene. And then that evening, the first day of the week, that night... They're gathered together, and Jesus says, peace be with you. And I, I think we taught on this a few months ago, this idea that, that pneuma, where we get pneumonia, is the word for breath or spirit or wind, right? So when you have pneumonia, you have trouble inhaling and exhaling, of breathing well. But the word pneuma also means Holy Spirit. And so what does Jesus do? He looks out at his disciples, and he says, he said he breathed on them, and said, receive the Spirit. I mean, can you imagine that? You're, you're gathered together. And they... Like, that seems a little awkward. It's a little play on words. It said, he pneumed on them and said, receive the pneuma. He's wanting them to really grasp that the Spirit is available to them. But it says that the disciples were there, but who was absent? Thomas. Thomas said, I'm done. I'm out. No way. I knew it. This isn't true. It's too good to be true, and I was right. Well, then Jesus, hearing Thomas's words, chooses to show up with him. There was a, an Italian painter by the name of Caravaggio. He was an Italian master Baroque painter, and he painted between around 1590 and 1610. And he was known for his use of really dramatic light uh, when, he, when he painted. And, and he actually painted a lot of biblical stories and figures. And he painted this painting, I want to show you, The Incredulity of St. Thomas in 1601. What do you notice when you see this? And I actually want you to talk out loud. So what do you see in this? What's that? Yeah. Looks like it hurts. What else do you notice? Yeah. Yeah. Others are looking in. What else do you notice? I notice Thomas's left hand. This anticipation, this significant moment. Even even the wrinkles on his forehead, like his eyes being so open 
of grasping what's actually happening right now. What else do you see? There's no wrong answer, okay? Yeah, who is, whose hand is that? Yeah. Some, some think it's Peter in the back right. Some think it's Jesus. I, I think it's Jesus, but there are some that, that think it's Peter from behind. But I, I think it's Jesus. What else do you notice? Yeah. Jesus' face is very peaceful. Okay, you've noticed a lot. What, what does this do to you? What does this make you feel as you think about this story? And this is where you can share out loud, too. How does that make you feel? Yeah, why is that? Mm, mm. What a courageous admission. What else does this make you feel? Huh? It's good. I'm just so drawn to Thomas's eyes. I wonder if he's like, I can't believe this is happening. Or maybe I can. When we think of Thomas, we don't think very highly of him, right? This dubious nickname of Doubting Thomas and has this reputation of being a very weak person. He's shunned, and again, the church says, don't be like him. But I have come to believe that Thomas may be one of the most misunderstood people in our entire Bible. And after studying Thomas for quite some time, I've come to the conclusion that Thomas is actually someone that I can actually deeply respect. And I hope this morning that that you can come to that conclusion as well. The book of John, of course, was written by John, the disciple, and he wrote it several years after these events occurred toward the latter part of his life. And as he had several and as he has had several years go by, he thinks about how to wrap up this entire book. He's getting to the very end, right? And when you're an author and you're getting to the end of a book, you want to make sure that you are emphasizing exactly with clarity what you want the reader to know. He tells a lot of amazing stories about Jesus, but he chooses to close toward the end of his biography of Jesus with this interesting story of Thomas. Now, Thomas that we read, is uh, it says, Thomas also called Didymus. Anybody have a footnote in your Bible? What does Didymus mean? Twin, yeah, or the second. Now, we never meet Thomas's twin. Wouldn't that be fascinating? I'd love to sit down and just say, what was it like growing up with Thomas? Did you fight a lot? Was he annoying? Yeah, it didn't happen. No way. That can't happen. What was it like to be a twin of Thomas? Now, engage your imagination here and close your eyes if you need to. But think about it. When a political leader or someone of influence was seen as a threat in the first century, the Roman Empire would take you out. It would kill that person and assassinate that person oftentimes to squelch a rebellion. They would also kill the leader's followers just like that to make a statement. Jesus had just been killed. It says that the doors were locked. It was nighttime. And they were fearing for their lives. And even the slightest movement or sound, you're in the house. What was that? Did you hear that? 
They are scared right now. (laughs) Behind locked doors. Now, if you were one of the disciples, what might you be feeling that night in the dark behind a locked door when your follower, or when your rabbi that you were following, your leader, has just been killed in a brutal, gruesome way? And many people are thinking that you're next. I mean, Thomas's emotions are raw. He's emotional. They've probably had very little sleep. His hopes have been incredibly dashed. He's fearful of his life. And in verse 25, he says this, in a really gruesome, politically incorrect, awful way to speak about your leader. He says, unless I see his nail marks... In his hands, and I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side. I won't believe a word of what you guys are telling me. I think there are other ways, other ways to get across to someone. I don't believe you. But with such gruesome detail, unless I stick my hand in his corpse. Or if he's alive, as you say he is, unless I'm actually able to get my fingers in those holes, I'm not going to believe it. I mean, you catch how gruesome that is to say something like that to these men you've been traveling with, following your teacher? It's morbid, it's wrong, it's unnatural. And Jesus suffered this gruesome death, and then this? At least Thomas was courageous enough to admit that he had doubt. It makes me wonder how many of the other disciples might have felt what Thomas did too, but didn't voice it. He could have faked it, right? But here's the thing. Doubting Thomas didn't doubt Jesus earlier in Jesus' ministry. In fact, just the opposite. In fact, in John chapter 11... To the left, a handful of chapters in the book of John is the story of Lazarus. Jesus is discussing with the disciples about his friend Lazarus who had just died. And Jesus says this really unique line. He said, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. And then in John 11, verse 16, it says, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Whoa. That seems like a lot of faith right there, just a few chapters to the left. Thomas was so convinced that Jesus was the way, he was willing to die for him. And now this happens, and he says, I don't believe it. No way. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever believed that God was so real and you believed the truth so much that you were willing to die for it? And then later doubt everything that you believe, just like Thomas. Jesus could have focused on many things and on many different people when he showed up to his disciples again when Thomas was present, but he chose to focus his energy and his attention in the direction of the doubter. Not to shame him. He didn't say, believe me first. You know what Jesus said? 
Come and touch me. Come and touch me, Thomas. It was as if Jesus was taking off his clothes, exposing himself, his robe, as if to say, I will do whatever it takes, even if it means vulnerability or exposure of me, to actually show you who I actually am. He was vulnerable with the doubter. And he would do whatever it took to show the doubter that it was him if it meant bringing Thomas closer to Jesus. Now John writes his philosophical climax, the philosophical treatise of the entire book right after this story. See, John believes that we need a hero and that we need someone to believe in us as we follow after Jesus. And it's as if John is saying, Jesus wants to show up. It's as if John is saying, your doubt does not disqualify you from being a follower of Jesus. Your doubt is not insurmountable. In fact, it can be just the beginning of your faith journey. Rather than repulsing him, Jesus turns back around and pursues him. And rather than me being repulsed by Thomas, I'm actually inspired by him. And I hope he inspires you as well. Because here's here's the good news. Christianity is not about believing in information. It's about believing in Jesus Christ. And there is a difference. There is a huge difference. And yet, despite the doubts of Thomas... God used Thomas in mighty ways. Now, according to church tradition and history, instead of going west after the the resurrection, like many of the disciples, Thomas decided to go east. He went to India. He didn't know what else to do to follow Jesus and tell others about him. So he did the only thing that he could think of trying to follow Jesus well. Scholars believe that Thomas sold himself into slavery in order to do carpentry work because he believed slaves needed to know about the freedom found in Jesus. He was a slave carpenter. That's why Thomas is often depicted in... in, uh, in art throughout the history with a carpenter's square in his hand. Look at some of these pictures. If you want to see St. Thomas around, that's a carpenter's square in his left hand. Next slide. So there's carpentry tools, and then on the right again, the carpenter's square. And one day, it's believed, as he sold himself into slavery to do carpentry, that he got up among his fellow slaves And he told the story of Jesus, and people believed him. And on that day, the first church of India was started. And another day, he got up and he told the story of Jesus, and more people believed. And another church was started. The scholars say that Thomas was martyred by a tribal chief with a spear near Madras, India, southern India, in about A.D. 72. A spear. 
He was killed with a spear. The same instrument that made the hole in the side of Jesus that Thomas reached in to touch. Thomas put his hands in that wound created by a spear, and then he somehow believed Jesus after this story enough to be killed by one of those spears. At the end of his life, slaves gave him the nickname Didymus Ha Christo, the twin of Christ. I don't know about you, but that moves me that God can use someone even like Thomas. When I was in in college, I I spent a month during January term of my sophomore year serving with a team of students in southern India, in Madras, Chennai is what it's called. And after serving in a church one Sunday morning, our guide took us in the van to the top of a mountain, and it was called St. Thomas Mountain. I'll show you a picture here of St. Thomas Mount. I think I have a picture. It's here where they believed that Thomas was martyred. I couldn't help but be moved standing on this place in India, so moved by what Thomas had chosen to do after this incredible story we read about in John 20. See, Christianity is a faith of doubters. And we can celebrate the fact that God is so big and his son Jesus is so loving and open to us that even in our doubts, he can welcome us in. In the Gospel of Mark, it records a story about a father who had a child who was possessed by a demon and the father is desperate and he comes to Jesus asking for help like any good desperate parent would do when their child is in such an awful condition. It says, so he brought him and when the spirit saw Jesus and immediately threw the boy into a convulsion and he fell to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth and Jesus said to the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the dad answered. It's often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus asked, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed with such courageous, courageous honesty. He said, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. For the last decade, in many ways, that's been the most honest, raw prayer that I can pray. Jesus, I do believe, but I also don't believe, and I need help with that. Many of us are familiar at the end of Matthew 28 what is often referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus gives his final instructions to his followers before leaving earth. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. But did you ever notice the two verses right above that? Here are the two verses right above that. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when he saw them, they worshiped him, but some doubted. 
all the way up to the end. They doubted, and yet even in their doubt, Jesus looks and says, you can go do my mission. I would feel a lot more comfortable if it said, and they worshiped him and were absolutely convinced to every fiber in their being that Jesus was the Messiah. That's not what it says. In their doubt, Jesus still sends them out. And some of us have been racked with guilt to say, there's no way I could follow Jesus. There's no way I could do this or that. There's no way Jesus would love me because I still have these doubts. But guess what? You're wrong. This is the kind of God who still loves us and pursues us in the midst of this. What does that do to you to know that Jesus is patient with us in our doubt and that he still sends us out to participate in his mission of redemption in the world when the D word still hangs around our neck like an albatross? I'm certainly here this morning not encouraging you to doubt more. What I'm trying to get you to do is hope more in the midst of your doubts. I'm attempting to have you see Jesus encouraging people, even his own disciples, who he spent three and a half solid, direct, up-close time with that they still doubted. One of the things that we did at our church uh, years ago when we were first starting is we hosted things called doubt nights for this very reason. We actually rented, we rented out a bar, and we said appetizers are on us, drinks are on you, because we knew if we did free drinks, we'd probably bankrupt the church if we did something like that. But we said, we, we want to encourage you to come with the same spirit and say, what are the doubts that you may have? And we encourage people to be courageous, and we say, what happens here stays here. It's like Vegas, little Vegas room, right? What happened in that room stayed in that room. Because we wanted people to feel complete freedom, to be able to express, I want to I learn, but I just don't. We had all sorts of people. We had agnostics. We had Christians. We had seminary professors. We had goths. We had skaters. We had punks. We had all sorts of people show up for all sorts of reasons when we would host this. And what we found is those who were far from Jesus were far more courageous about being honest about their doubts than those who've already, who'd grown up in church their whole lives. And in the midst of that, people began to not be so scared of these questions and to realize that maybe I can come to doubt my doubts. And maybe faith is nothing more than us doubting our doubts. Whatever your doubts are, this is the good news. God is bigger than them. The former president of my college used to say, if you turn over a rock, you can rest assured that there won't be anything that will jump out from under that rock and eat God. Your doubts are okay and can actually be addressed because God is big enough even in our doubts. Thomas sees the holes in his broken body and then says, my Lord and my God. And in his journey, he comes to the place where he believes he is what we might call a late bloomer. And it's here when, for the first time, he comes to the point where he believes 
in Jesus? Can we acknowledge our doubts before God? Can we say, I believe, but help me with my unbelief? Can we acknowledge them before one another? Are you willing to believe Jesus just enough to be sent out to live like him, even with your doubt? I think of the, um, that movie, The Count of Monte Cristo, uh, Jim Caviezel. It's been out quite a while. But in there, he's thrown in prison, and there's an old priest, and he's been in there a long time. And the priest is talking about God, and, and the count looks up at him. He says, well, I don't believe in God. And the priest has a big smile on his face. He says, that's okay, because God believes in you. Even when you feel like you can't fully believe God, you can rest assured and know that God fully believes in you. Christianity is the faith of doubters, and we can celebrate that. And the summation, the purpose of the story included at the end of this treatise on Jesus and Thomas. In verse 31, it says this, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. John says that believing despite our doubts leaves us not just to be religious, but that we may have life in his name. The purpose is to have life like never before. And graciously, Jesus actually in verse 27 invites Thomas and says, stop doubting and believe. I tend to think because of the love that Jesus has shown to Thomas at this point, that's not a scold, that that's a gracious challenge. Thomas, you know I believe in you. Thomas, I've lowered myself and made myself vulnerable to you and opened myself up for you to touch. I think the only thing left, Thomas, is for you to stop doubting because it's me. It's me. So let me, let me end with these four thoughts because I think these have implications on people like you and me. The first one is that Christianity is not threatened by our doubt. God is bigger than our doubts and it's in our doubts that take us down to that road of faith. And that we, maybe the point of that is that we can begin to doubt our doubts. And the second is this, that despite our doubts, what would have to happen for our nickname to also be Didymus Ha Christo. And third, that the role of Jesus, there is a God who's willing to do anything, even humiliate himself and make himself vulnerable with you to show you that he wants to meet you where you are in the midst of your doubts. I love the the last song, the lyrics of the last song that we just sang. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Those arms are open wide. He doesn't have his arms folded saying, when you finally believe, do you know all I've done for you? Do you know what I've done? Do you know what I've gone through? And now you still doubt me? This is not the spirit of Jesus. Can I get an amen for that? His, I'm here, let me help you. In fact, let me take your hand and guide it into my side because I so want you to feel this and experience this, to know I'm it. 
That's the kind of Jesus we have. And lastly, if God can use someone like Thomas, then he can use someone like you and me. This is a great painting, but maybe it's your turn. Here's what I'd like for us to do as we end. I want you to take your cards. I'm going to do something pretty unique. I'd like all of us, if you're physically able, can we, can we get up and actually end by making a large circle? We don't have to hold hands, but just at least make a, a circle around the room just as we close. I want to close with a final prayer and a benediction together. And bring your cards with you. And I want you to look at your card or what you wrote down. And then I want you to look at the people around the room and realize that this church and this community are filled with people that have stuff written on their cards too. And maybe your role here at this church is to actually remind people what's on that card that Jesus is actually bigger than that. Not in a scolding way, not in a cliche-ridden way, but in a way that says, if Jesus still loves you and accepts you despite what is written on that card, so do I, and so do we at this church. And some of you, you feel like what's written on your card is so much and so deep, how could you ever be honest with people about what's here? And I'll say that, if you do that, Satan wins. (laughs) The evil one would love for you to say, my doubts are too big. I'm too embarrassed. They'll reject me. There's no way people would love me and accept me if I shared what's on this card. And you know what? The evil one wins. We become the kind of community that says, I believe. Help me with my unbelief because your belief will help cover my unbelief and my belief will help cover uh, yours because ultimately we are pursuing a Jesus who chooses to take his robe off and make himself vulnerable with us to say, Generation Church, stick all y'all's hands in my side because I'm big enough and I love you enough to do that. And as you remember that, may you then turn outward and realize that you work with all sorts of people and live in neighborhoods with all sorts of people and with families. And you go to the gym with all sorts of people. And you're in the line at the post office with all sorts of people that think their doubt is too much for God to love someone like them. And your role is to make sure that you're the kinds of people that say, no, 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 no. God is not doing this. Wagging his finger at you saying, come on, why don't you believe in me? He's saying, you take your finger and stick it in here. And so with that, I'm going to give you a benediction as we go, but I do want you to look at your card. Don't look at me like I normally say. Look at your card. And as you look at your card, would you receive the benediction? Brothers and sisters of Generation Church, would you go? And would you go knowing that whatever you've written on your card, that Jesus is bigger than that, that he's actually patient with you, And whatever you've written on your card regarding doubts, 
he still thinks that you have what it take, takes to follow him and to live out his mission of redemption this week and this month and this year and during the rest of your life. So would you go in that joy? And would you go knowing that there's a God who wants to help you with your belief and also with your unbelief? And may that lead you to doubt your doubts. To get to the point where you can say what Thomas said, my Lord and my God. To the point that one day you would be accused of having the nickname Didymus Ha Christo. Generation Church, go and be the twins of Christ in your week, in your workplaces, in your neighborhoods, in your places of fun and pleasure and enjoyment because that's the invitation of the good news of Jesus available to you. God bless and bless God. And above all else, friends, know that you are loved. Amen, amen, amen.